Good morning. Good job for getting out of bed. It's encouraging. Um, we are going to do what we have been doing normally. We're going to go over the, our, uh, have you look over the back of your notebook in a moment. We're going to go into small group a little bit. And then today, we are going to turn the corner from talking about discipline one on shepherding your heart. Because now you've got it all down, and you never, we don't need to talk about it anymore. <laughs> and so now we can graduate from that, and we move on to secondary education, uh, which is the home. And so uh, we'll be doing that and, and talking about that today. Uh, so let's go ahead and, and think about your build disciplines. Uh, so if you want to turn your notebook over, you can do that. Um, we'll walk through them and, and think about them together. Again, what we're trying to do with build is we're calling the men of the church to come unite in one particular place, so to speak, and that place is these leadership spiritual disciplines. We want men to be unified around these leadership disciplines. Um, You could probably have 400 leadership disciplines that you would want men to think about on a regular basis. We are trying to kind of distill it down into these six. the women have distilled it down. Stop taking my food. Hi, Smith. Are you sampling things back there? Sampling your teaching. What room are you in? And the Rice Krispie Treats. Are you, are, are, you, are you meeting in that room? It's okay. I couldn't remember this morning if we switched you or not. All right. All right, what were we talking about? Oh, leadership disciplines. Uh, the women have taken them and, dis- and distilled them down to the three. They, they do discipline one, two, and three. Four, five, and six more apply to what we really want to try to do with the men in the church. Not that the women shouldn't think about them. They do. But we are trying to gather and unite ourselves around these six. It starts with the heart. Um, and we're going to talk about this probably sooner and later. I don't know when we're going to do it. Um, but we're going to talk about more specifically what the heart is. Um, in Scripture, the heart um, and, and how it, uh, what the gospel does in giving a new heart um, and explaining that heart is basically you, right? It's you from an inward perspective. It's the inner person. It's the inner man. It's the inner woman. Um, it's the. At one point, it was the heart could have been called the old man, and that old man was. Uh, through and through only sinful and rebellious against God. There is now a new man. It's a new heart. It's a new you. That new condition that you are in is very much unlike the old condition. The old condition was uh, an unmixed condition. Only rebellion, only sin, only depravity, only, only transgression against God. The new condition is a mixed condition by God's doing. He created this new condition. Ephesians 4 says. Um, this new condition has new desires, new um, loves, a desire to obey, where we never had that before. And, um, but it also has indwelling sin remaining. And therefore, it requires that new condition, that new man, that new heart, requires diligent shepherding. Because if you do nothing, the indwelling sin will poison everything. When you get to heaven, you won't have to shepherd your heart anymore. Okay? 
Now you have to shepherd your heart. Before you came to Christ, uh, you didn't even really, couldn't even separate yourself away from yourself for a moment to evaluate yourself. You were just so bound and caught up in who you were that you couldn't lead yourself away from what you were. Now there's this ability almost in Christ to be able to say, I see now through God's word what I am more clearly than what I ever did before. And now I can tell myself what to think. Or before I was just a slave to everything I thought and desired. You see, this is a brand new condition and you can't go back to what you were. That is dead. It was buried with Christ. You were crucified with Christ. And it doesn't get off the cross and come back. You are a new person. You are a new creature in Christ. You must shepherd your inner person um, on a daily basis. And God gave to us a tool to do that. It is his word. And primarily what we are after is not just getting theological, biblical facts and truths and details. We are after getting the God of the word. Because God made us for himself. He saved us to himself. Um, We get him And the best way that we can have him right now is through these letters he has written to us. Okay? So you shepherd your heart with the word of God to get the God of the word. As you'll see today, uh, the heart of God, the expectation of God from the very beginning of um, revelation and redemptive history is that the first place of impact that is uh, felt by that kind of a man is the household. The household uh, relationships feels that more than anybody else. You need to step into your home and lead and care for the body of Christ or care for your family before you're ready to jump into the body of Christ and care for people there. Um, So we'll talk about that today and and do a survey through the Bible. Um, The third discipline is the kind of man who is not playing leapfrog over his heart, not playing leapfrog over his family just to get to public looking like ministry or evangelism is the best man capable for that ministry outside the home is the man who has cared for his heart well, cared for his family well. That's the kind of man you want to step into the lives of of people and care for people with the gospel. Um, We'll get to that in December. The fourth discipline is really a summarizing of the first two or a spelling out of the uh, the first three, I should say. It's really a spelling out of the first three through qualifications primarily deacon qualifications, but also elder qualifications. You would be able to look through any of the deacon qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and say, oh yeah, that one's about the inner man. That's about the heart. Oh, that one's about his household. Oh, that one's about how he deals with people. Um, You'd be able to say discipline one, two, or three. Okay? And so we're going to focus you in on those um, qualifications coming up because we want qualified men ready to serve and lead in ministry in the body of Christ. That just doesn't happen. Men just, and you can see this in churches, men attend the church, but if you don't be intentional with the men and if you don't help the men to be intentional with their own hearts, they don't just grow into ministry leaders. You have to focus, you have to discipline, you have to, you don't just get in a raging river that's going down the mountain and do nothing and go upstream. You have to fight to get upstream. And in a church, the church needs to fight to get the men to go against the grain of their flesh and of the world and advance towards leadership in both the home and in the church. And we want qualified men who are 
who can be measured by these qualifications and say, yeah, the body assesses that this is a man who, who meets the qualifications for ministry. Um, discipline five is about um, the hermeneutic. What's very important in all of this is that if we're going to be shepherding our hearts to the word of God to get the God of the word, we need to be able to uh, make sure that we're cutting the word of God rightly, that we're able to um, rightly represent it, read it, represent it, teach it to others. And so we're going to talk about the manner in which we interpret the Bible at Grace Bible Church. We'll spend uh, three weeks on that towards the end of the year. And really, uh, that's, that's just... By the time we have focused on all of the other disciplines and we get to that one, uh, I, just, I get really excited about that because the idea of... That's uh, just a favorite topic of mine, just and just studying the Bible. And I just want to, we want to impart that to you, and we want to give you a taste for what they're doing across the hall uh, in H3, and what Smed works on with those guys uh, every week for a year. I think you'll really enjoy that. And then lastly, you're not at any church; you're at a specific church. You're at Grace Bible Church, and so you need to uh, understand what we have set our sights on as a church. We have a vision. We, we have our sights set on something. We're using that word vision in a sense of, of sight. We put our eyes on something. The glory of God and the cross of Jesus Christ, uh, which results in the transformation of life by the Holy Spirit. Those three things. That does not lead us, when you focus on that in Scripture, it doesn't lead you to do nothing or to be static or to be lazy. It leads you to a gospel purpose that is in Jesus, which is to draw people into the gospel, to build them up in the gospel, in order to send them out in the gospel. So uh, that's what we'll focus on in Discipline 6 towards the end of the year as well. And we'll do that one actually together in a combined Saturday morning with the women. Uh, And we'll probably, I think, be in the music room. So there'll be probably close to 80 or 90 of us together. Okay? So there's your build disciplines. Any Anything you guys want to add to that? Any of the elders want to jump in and offer encouragement or anything on that? Can I, can I tell you this? We, we've gone through, what is it? We've done three on the heart now. You've been starting to, to read the Bible on a consistent basis with uh, the reading plan that you're taking a look at. Um, you're going you're gonna to be discouraged at points by what you see and don't see in your heart. Okay? And we know that, and um, we want to come alongside you and be an encouragement to you. And I need brothers to come alongside me in this as much as you do. Okay? Um, elders need to be leaders in th- these disciplines. Uh, they need to have these in their lives in a way that um, they can say to, to the men of the church, follow me as I'm following Christ in this way. Um, but we, we still, even as elders, need encouragement with this and we need help. And, and uh, so as ones who need help, we want to come alongside you and help you. So if you're really discouraged and um, you feel like you don't even maybe know and understand what we're talking about in regards to shepherding your heart with the word of God, what does that look like? Come and talk to one of us. and um, Or even together, guys, there's nothing wrong with um, getting together with a brother and saying, let's read the Bible together out loud. And let's try to do this in a way that we can almost kind of train each other and learn from each other how we're doing this. As you read, before you read, 
ask God to show you himself. God, don't let me just read this account and just, oh, I've read this a hundred times. No, God surprised me once again with you. God is always lurking in the text somewhere. And he doesn't even have to be named. And you can see him at work in the lives of orchestrating events and stopping men and raising others up. And he doesn't even have to be mentioned. And he's there. Do that together. Stop and pause as you read the Bible together. Give each other help in that way. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's a wise thing to do. Um, so come alongside each other in that way, okay? And certainly ask an elder for help if you want to, okay? We'd love to do that. All right, so what we're going to do is you're going to break into small groups today. As I said earlier, we're going to turn the corner this morning from... Uh, Discipline one on shepherding the heart to discipline two, which is shepherding the home. And um, we're going to do what we've done at the beginning of, what we did at the beginning of the discipline one, introducing it. We're going to do a biblical survey. Rather than be in one text, we're going to work through a lot of texts. And the reason for that is because we want to try to ask ourselves, what do we see about God's heart in Scripture overall for the household? So that's what we're thinking. As we do it, again, we're going to be modeling for you basically the hermeneutic that uh, we're convinced of, the, the way of interpreting the Bible the way we should, and that is we're going to be moving from left to right. Okay, we're going to walk from the Old Testament forward into the New Testament. Um, we need to always end in the New Testament because we do not live under Noah's purpose that God had for him. There are certainly similarities between what Noah was supposed to do for God and what we do for God as believers. We do not live under Abraham's purpose. Certainly there are similarities. We believe and we are declared righteous just as Abraham believed and was declared righteous. We don't live under Israel's purpose as spelled out in Mosaic Law for them. We live under the gospel purpose of Jesus. So in whatever it is that we're looking at and observing, it's helpful for us to move from left to right so that we don't neglect the Old Testament, um, so we can see the heart of God there revealed, but so that we can also then make our way to the New Testament and see where Christ specifically commands us through his apostles um, how the church is to live. God revealed to Paul and the apostles what, the, what is the administration of the mystery, which is how is the church supposed to function. And so we need to make sure that we pay attention to that, and so that's why we move from left to right. Okay, so we're going to be doing that as we work through these sections. <clears throat> Before we do that, though, let's pray, because we have God's word open, we're going to look at it, and um, we need help. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we gather before your word again this morning and our desire is to um, really see what your heart is and uh, to see what you're thinking, to see what um, convinces you, what moves you. And so God, we, especially in regards to the household um, and the relationships that are there, so Father, would you please come and, and meet with us would you guide us? Would you make um, this word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
give it its full penetrating ability in my own heart this morning, in the hearts of my friends here. Lord, we, we pray that you would go deep with your word so that we might not just see you, but so that we might also be able to um, obey you in regards to our households. Um, so Lord, we offer ourselves to you and we plead with you to have your way in us and change us that we might be more faithful to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, I have nine categories for us to consider this morning to help us see God's heart for the household relationships. So number one, the relationship between the heart and household relationships. Let's start with Exodus 20, um, verse 12, commandment number five. the first place in the Ten Commandments where the commandments uh, turn and become more specifically horizontal, not just vertical, between us and God. First four commandments, next six, horizontal. That is not to assume or conclude or teach that the horizontals have nothing to do with God. They have much to do with God, but they focus us on relationships. And in particular, the first relationship they focus on is with parents and child. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Look at verse 14. It's concerned about the husband-wife relationship God is. You shall not commit adultery. And then he's even concerned that you think rightly about your neighbor's household. Verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And I say you, and I need to be careful when I do that because it's not you, it's Israel, right? Um, But Israel was supposed to be very concerned uh, that they were not um, looking at another person's household and all that is there and and, uh, having greener grass uh, syndrome set in. So, first of all, what we see here is God has just very specific ideas, right? He has very specific expectations for just this basic foundational relationship arena, the household. Um, early on when he, um, this is the, I mean, we're, look, if you look at how many pages are before this in your Bible, this is very early on in your Bible, and he gives the most formalized regulation body of regulations that had ever been seen in redemptive history up to this point in Exodus. I think the Jews counted somewhere, what, around 640 commands that they were given in Mosaic law. Um, God is very specific um, with these formalized regulations, uh, more specific than he'd ever been, and what he reveals to us is that he is thinking about household relationships, okay? Just bottom line. God is thinking about household relationships, uh, let's, and you see the same in Deuteronomy 5, but let's turn to Deuteronomy 4, the next passage to take a look at. Let's move to the right. Uh, Deuteronomy 5 is the repeat of the Ten Commandments, right? About a generation later, about 40 years later. But Deuteronomy 4, verses 9 and 10. Watch this. Moses says, Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. Now just full stop. 
There's discipline one spelled out for Israel. Give heed to yourself. Well, what do you mean by yourself? Uh, keep your soul diligently. Your soul, another way of describing who you are. And towards the end of that, so that they don't depart from your heart. That's you. Okay? So give heed to yourself. Keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and that they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. There's discipline one. Look how the verse ends. But make them known to your sons and grandsons. Household relationships. Uh, verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and so that they may teach their children. So here's God revealing that the burden in the household is for parents to make sure their children know what it is that God did for the prior generation in redeeming them from Israel or from uh, Egypt. Go to Deuteronomy 6. We'll see the connection again between Discipline 1 and Discipline 2. This is the Shema, uh, the great hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Shema means hear. And notice what he says in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then... He says, with that heart, I have something for it. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So there's discipline one. Discipline two, verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Israelite leaves in the morning to go out to the field from leaving his house, and the last thing he sees as he goes out his door, as he goes out his gate, is the word of God. Comes back in from having been out all day. First thing he sees before he comes to the house, the word of God. God knows that when you are coming back into the house, you need to have the word of God. There needs to be your house needs to be impacted by the word of God. Um, one of the easy ways that um, we can do something similar to that is just by, look, puts, puts on a note card or put in your phone or whatever uh, scripture, and as you drive home, look at it. And say, God, I'm about to walk through the doorpost of my house, and I need to be impacted by the word of God. My family needs me to be impacted by the word of God. My roommates need me to be impacted by the word of God. My parents need me to be impacted by the word of God. And... Um, that's God's heart here being revealed. Go to Deuteronomy 7. Uh, we're told here what Israel was instructed when the Lord God brings you to the land where you are entering to possess. You're going to clear these nations out, seven of them. And he says, when the Lord your God delivers them before you, you and you defeat them, you shall utterly destroy them. No covenants being made with them. No favor. Look at verse 3. Therefore you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. They will. They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. We see this spelled out, don't we, 
in the later pages of the Old Testament. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. Rather, this is what you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and hew down their asherim, and burn their graven images with fire. Destroy everything of their worship. Now, what is God saying here? Israel was not to let within Israel even one of these households begin. Not one household can begin where there is an Israelite who marries a foreigner who worships another god. God says that kind of household is not to exist in Israel. God feels very strongly about the kind of household he wants. And this kind of household cannot even begin at all. Do not marry with them. And the reason for that, we know, is because the heart will easily be led away. The generation that intermarries those of another God, they have their hearts turned away from Yahweh. And the burden was on the father and the mother to not let their sons or their daughters do this in Israel. Okay? To shepherd their children in such a way that it wouldn't cross the child's mind that, you know, I'm going to abandon Yahweh and go after these other gods with this woman or with this other man. So this is very interesting. We know what we put positively is that the condition of your heart will impact your home. So that's why we're saying pay attention to the condition of your heart with the word of God so that you can impact your home. What are we finding out here? That the home will impact what? The heart. Form the wrong home, and it can lead your heart far away from God. Okay? So it works both ways. It's a two-way street. Let's go to Psalm 78. As always, if you have questions, you're more than welcome to ask along the way. Just raise your hand, interrupt, get my attention, whatever. Yo! That's a, that's a good illustration. Any illustration where um, it's not cruise control and it's not doing it all by itself is a good illustration. <laughs> where you've got to keep your hand constantly on the wheel because there's a current that's going this way or there's a wind blowing this way. You've got to, in fact, you've even got to overcorrect to get there and you have to constantly hang on to it. Yes, that's, that's exactly what this is. It's a discipline. This is a discipline. This does not happen on its own. You will not wake up today and your family will just be, and your household will just be everything that it's supposed to be. You have to labor. You have to apply yourself to lead in this way. Psalm 78, 1 to 8. Listen to this. A mass skill of Asaph. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known. And our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children. In other words, my generation, our fathers told us, and I won't conceal them from their children. That's my generation, my contemporaries. But we'll tell them to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. 
For he established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel. Here's, this is the word of God. Which he commanded our fathers. That they should teach them to their children. So that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. Three generations. Four generations, talking about the fathers before. Tell them what? Teach them what? Verse 7, that they should put their confidence in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation that did not prepare its heart. They didn't shepherd their hearts. And whose spirit was not faithful to God. So the inseparable connection here between a man's heart for Yahweh and his obligation with his own children, it, it was undeniable in Israel. Go to the end of the Old Testament. Go to Malachi 4. Malachi is easy to find, right? Matthew and then back up one page. Malachi 4. We're obviously not covering every passage in the Old Testament that reveals this kind of thing, just kind of trying to hit some highlights. Malachi 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. There's, that's, that's liveliness compared to everything burnt out. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. There's the word of God. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that they will not come so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse interesting through elijah god is going to turn the heart of one generation back to the heart of the next generation and vice versa the hearts to the the fathers to the children and hearts of the children to their fathers so get this what does this say god's way of preparing his people israel for his coming, it included something. Strengthening household relationships. He's being gracious. He's saying, look, I'm going to come and I'm going to smite everything. One of the ways that you can be ready for this is to strengthen your families. You see that? So this tells us how important God's heart, um, or it shows that God's heart is, is inclined strongly towards the home, it's important in his mind. Uh, something of that is repeated in Luke in regards to John the Baptist, right? So this has fulfillment in John the Baptist in his ministry. Go to Ephesians 6. There's also more to be fulfilled yet in that as well. Because there is not a uh, yet, 
a blaze that has come that has burned both branch and root. There's much yet to come before that great day. Ephesians 6, very familiar passage. Uh, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. There's the fifth commandment that is brought under the authority of Jesus Christ for his church. So if children are going to be in a place where they can do this, where they can honor their parents, they are going to need to be, children are going to need to shepherd their hearts with the word of God so that they are able to even do that. Right? So children need to be taught how to shepherd their own hearts so that they can be obedient to God and honor their parents. Verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers need to shepherd their hearts so that they don't wear their kids out. Because guess what you will do if you do nothing with your heart? You will wear people out. I see this over and over in my own home. When I have not been... uh, when I have not paid close attention to my heart, my family suffers. They feel it. Um, and yours will too. We need help in this. We need to shepherd our hearts. First um, Timothy 3. We're in the, to the qualifications for elder starts off in verse 1 with, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. There's a household relationship. Temperate. Prudent. Respectable. Hospitable. Uses his house there. Able to teach. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Here we go. He must be one who manages his own household well. well. What does that mean? This, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? You see, there is a, a thought in God's mind that if you want to be able to tell if a man knows how to shepherd and lead the church, there's one place you need to look first, and that's at the smaller group of people that he's already caring for. If he can't care for the smaller group, How's he going to be able to care for the church? So what is on God's heart? God's design in the church is to have men leading who have trained themselves to oversee their household relationships, to have men who won't play leapfrog over their wives and over their children as they engage in gospel ministry in the church. So that tells us again that God is thinking very much about the household relationship. Question? That's, that's a good question. Um, it is the, the, the predominant um, reality in this day was that a man would get married and that a man would have kids. That does not mean that every man did, but that was that's, if you're going to try to hit the, the biggest group of men, that's the group of men you're going to hit with instruction. Um, when you instruct to that big target of men where most men are found and this is true even I think still in our day that's where most men are at 
that does not necessarily forbid men who are not in that target pattern from uh, the office of elder. This does not say by teaching positively about a man who is married and has kids, it does not forbid a man who is not married or does not have kids to be in the office of elder. It just says that if he is one of these men, he must be this kind of a man. Right? Jacob? Well, similarly, just how you look at the household of an elder, you look at his, the sphere of influence that he has throughout every hour, most hours of his life, and influence that household. You want to see how that man is going to influence the life of people? Look at his children. Look at his wife. If you're single guy, look at his roommate. See what that kind of house looks like. So, yeah. I, I think it does have application. That's, that's not yeah. what speaking to the principle of application. That's good. That's good. Um, yeah. In the same way that it doesn't have to be a man who's he doesn't have to be married to be an elder. Um, so yeah, it uh, it's, it speaks positively to what more most men are at, but it doesn't forbid uh, men who are outside that. Okay, that's category one. Category two, short one. One Old Testament man who grasped God's heart for the family and home. Um, I, I picked him not because he is the only one, but because he is a, a very obvious one. And if you'll notice, as you look down uh, to next to number three, Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart for the family and home, you notice that there's quite a few more, and that's because the Old Testament is full of them. So let's look at Joshua first as a positive example. Joshua 24, verses 14 to 28. We won't read all of that. Let me back you up to Joshua 24, verse 1. Sometime, this this will be... This will be an interesting um, study for you to do. Uh, just just research the word, the place, Shechem. In verse 1, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And he called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Now, w- what's going on here? Where is this setting? It's the last chapter of Joshua. They have conquered the land. They are in, and he says, I want all the leaders, I want all the people at, at Shechem now. You need to ask yourself, why Shechem? Okay. Shechem is a place back when Jacob came back from having been with Laban and his whole family. He went over as one man and he came back, a big company. He came to Shechem and there's an oak tree there. And he said, give me all of the idols. Give me all the idols. Family gave him all the idols. He dug a hole and he buried them under the tree in Shechem. Joshua says, everybody at Shechem, they know what's coming. Look at verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river. I'm talking about Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, and I led him throughout the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac, etc. And he starts to walk through the whole story. Now, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Okay, you've been in Egypt. You've been delivered out into the wilderness. We got the law. A whole generation. We had to wait a generation before we could even get into the promised land because we built the golden calf and wanted to go back. We've now conquered the land and we still have in our midst 
the gods of Abraham and Nahor before they were called out? What? Joshua sees this. So he calls him back to Shechem. He says in verse 15, If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Look, I'm calling you the fork in the road, Joshua says. What are you going to do? If it's disagreeable to you to serve, to, to serve Yahweh, then go serve your God, your other God. Whether it's the gods which your father served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. So what does he do? He points them in two different directions. He says, look, make your decision. You either serve the gods from your past that we're still hanging on to or serve the gods of the Amorites in the land that we just came into. Of course, he doesn't want them to serve them, but he's saying, look, it's time to, you can't have this blending. You can't have this mixture of worship. He says, but as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. We're going to worship Yahweh. And, and their answer is interesting in verse 16. I, I want to explore this a lot more. Notice that they, what they don't say. They don't say, okay, we're going to throw away those gods and only worship Yahweh. Look what they say. Far be it from us that we should forsake Yahweh to serve other gods. And the way they talk is like, uh, we're not forsaking Yahweh. We've got these other gods, but we're not forsaking Yahweh. We worship him too. And so he keeps going back and forth with him in, the, in this little kind of a discussion. He just said, you, you can't do it. You can't do this. And they keep saying, oh yeah, we can. You can read that, that chapter. But Joshua is a, is a man who stood against the tide where everybody around him was not supposed to be worshiping other gods, but they were. And yet his household was different. Let's talk about some Old Testament failures. Let's go back to Exodus 4 and look at Moses. Now, Moses was not a, a, an altogether complete disaster, but he had a disastrous moment. This is one of those passages that you read and you kind of go, that's a, that's a weird thing. Where did that come from? Why does, why does God do that? Why does he put little snippet, little snapshots like this in? Look at chapter 4, verse 21. Remember, this is he has just appeared to Moses, and he said, look, it's time to go back. I, I'm going to get my people. I've heard their cries, and you're going to be the guy. Moses says, I don't want to be the guy, and God says, you're still going to be the guy. Let's go. So he packs up Zipporah and, his, and his, his family, and they start to head back. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And so that's where he's gone, getting the head back. Now watch this, verse 24. And it came about the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Did, did somebody just pull the emergency brake and we, or what? You go and you do this, and then all of a sudden God meets him on the way and says, Moses, you're done. What happened? Verse 25. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin, and she threw it at Moses' feet, and she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So God let Moses alone. 
at that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of this circumcision. All right, so what is happening here? This is what's happening. Moses put God's deliverance of his people, Israel, potentially at risk by himself neglecting circumcising his own son. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? His family, Moses' family, didn't have the sign of the covenant in the next generation. Moses did. His son didn't. And so Moses, on the way to inform Israel that the God that, that she as a nation is in covenant, when, covenant with, didn't apply the covenant to his own family. Could a covenant-neglecting man speak for the covenant God to his covenant people when his own son doesn't even have the mark of the covenant? God says, you're done. I'm not going to have that. And this is where you praise God for godly, obedient wives. That's a, a, a falter in Moses' life. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and look at the... The poor example of Eli, 1 Samuel, chapter 2. It is, I mean, think about, think about this. Moses is called the friend of God. It is said of Moses in the Old Testament that no man was as near to God as Moses was. No, God didn't speak to man, uh, any man like he spoke to Moses face to face. And here he's on the road, he's going to kill him. Is Moses needs help. Look, he's just like you. He's just like me. And God's very gracious and he keeps working with Moses. Okay? But Moses needed to take serious the, 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 the covenant implications of God. 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. Um, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Eli is the priest overseeing the, uh, the tent. Um, the custom of the priest, how, how is it that they were worthless men? Well, this was the custom of the priest with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was still boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or cauldron or pot and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. That's what they did in Shiloh, where the tent was, to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they even had a chance to burn the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, uh, give the priest meat for roasting. He doesn't want to take boiled meat from you, only raw meat. Because he liked it rare and he wanted to cook it himself. No, I'm just kidding, I don't know. Um, but he's not supposed to do this. This is where rare meat's good, it's the way it should be cooked. But there's, um, they were supposed to offer it this way first, burn the fat off. And then the priest could have access to what was left. And they were not instructed to do what they did with the pot of taking the meat out. And if a man in verse 16 said, no, they, they must surely burn the fat first and then they can take as much as you desire. He would say, no, but you shall give it to me now. And if not, I'll take it by force. So this is what Eli's sons and his son's servants are doing. Summary, thus the sin of the young men was very great before Yahweh. For the men despised the offering of Yahweh. They didn't care what God said to do with it. They just wanted the meat. That's what they were doing. Jump over to verse 22. Eli was very old and he heard all that his sons were doing to all of Israel. He heard it. 
Did he not see it? Where was he? It took him hearing about it from somebody else. He heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. This is God's tent? God was shaking a mountain in the, in the wilderness and he told him, get away from the mountain, don't touch the mountain. God was swallowing up this mountain with his glory and his presence and then he tells Moses and the elders, I want you to build a tent because my presence that's swallowing up this mountain is going to, I'm going to put it in a tent in the middle of you. And you carry that with me. What? God, you're swallowing up a mountain. This mountain can't even handle your presence and you're going to come and dwell in a little tent? That's this tent. There are women and who are at the doorway of the tent and these priests are sleeping with them. Okay, grasp this. No, my sons, the report is not good, which I hear. You think? Drop down to verse... Oh, and here's, we have to read this. Verse 26. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. Every time that Eli's sons are mentioned, then Samuel's mentioned as a boy. And he's always mentioned as the positive, the good example. Every time he is mentioned first, what's followed by that in 1 Samuel is, and Eli's boys were terrible. Okay? Drop down to verse 29. Um... Here's what happens next. A a man of God, some kind of a prophet, comes to Eli and he confronts Eli and he says, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me? You honor your sons above me. How? By making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord of God Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Wow. You honor your sons above me. You see, that's a helpful clarification for us to get at this point in the Old Testament because... What God is doing, with all of the emphasis that he's saying on the home, the home, the home, shepherd your household, shepherd your household, make it the focal point, run there, focus there, bring the word of God to bear there. This is a helpful clarification. What he is not talking about is honoring your family above God. Okay? Yes? Um, It seems like that's in his mind. Um, are you saying he didn't he didn't fill this out? Yeah, because it says that I promised that your house. You know, oh, I see. Yeah, um, that's you know the Bible is full of of uh, sections like that and expressions like that that represent God to us like um, the way that we represent uh, and and are before each other. Um, this is a way God did make this promise to His. Family, did he know in his sovereignty and knowing all things that this was going to happen? Yes, he did. And he's saying, and I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, and this is a way for God to express, um, for, for the writer of Scripture to express God in terms like we are, so that it, we can understand. Uh, we are not to imply from this and take from this that somehow God um, 
had a plan that was immutable and now it well it did change now um, now this is how he he planned it to be all along and it revealed it in itself in time in this way and um, so he certainly revealed to the, at some point to the priest to Eli's house that your house is the your house is the family and then with this he says that promise no longer stands um, any of you guys have a, another way you'd want to express that? Um, he, he sounds, verse 35, he says, I'm not done with my promise. It's not like I promise something and I'm just forgetting it. No, I'm, I'm going to raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to all that's in my heart. So this promise I'm going to do, it's not on your house anymore because your house is perfect enough not to be that kind of house. Um, and I will build for him a sure house. He shall build an house until I anoint it forever. Um, he, he's not done with the promise. Right. It looked like he was promising one yep. thing. And God does this to him. He looks like he's promising one thing. He says, what you thought I was promising it isn't quite what I was promising. I something even better right. than I'm promising. Great. Like David. Yeah. I think he's talking about Solomon, but he's not, not really. He's talking yeah. about something Right, and what's his, what's his point? What's he doing? With progressive revelation, he makes you keep seeing. Okay, so there's something more. Because who's he talking about in verse 35? I, I will, um, I'll have a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and my soul. I will build him an enduring house. He's talking about Samuel. And as you're about to see next, Samuel's not the guy either. So what do I have to do? I have to keep reading. Because there will come a priest. And he will be faithful in all of God's household. We read that last time. Hebrews 3. It's Messiah. Okay? So let's go to this next um, this next one. Um, let's go to uh, Samuel. First Samuel 7. Verse 15. Now Samuel, you know, he, he grows up and he judges and is a priest and is kind of a prophet and he's kind of all bound up together in several of these different offices and he judged Israel all the days of his life, 715. He used to go annually on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzbah, and he judged Israel in these places. Then his return uh, was to Ramah where, uh, for his house was there and there he judged Israel and he built there an altar to the Lord. That's an interesting statement. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Whew, we're going to have some good boys now. Now the name of this firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, and they took bribes, and they perverted justice. And then the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah at his house and they said to him, Behold, you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. We want a king. And we all know that that was something that was not pleasing to Samuel to hear and it was also not pleasing in a sense to God to hear. But Samuel is at a degree of fault here because the nation was chafing under Samuel's sons and the ungodly request that they went to, even they were maybe they were even sinned against by Samuel's sons. Sure they were. They responded with an ungodly request for a king. 
They're rejecting God as their king. The ungodly request for a king is tied inseparably to the chafing that they felt under Samuel. Samuel, you're getting old, and this isn't working with your sons. They're ungodly in their leadership. So Samuel's ministry lacked the integrity that it could have had. Um, And this is a great example in the Old Testament of how a lapse or a failure at Discipline 2 then impacts Discipline 3, or people beyond your household. Mess up your household, and the people around you in the church are going to feel it. Um, 2 Samuel 7. Let's talk about David. First, we're going to establish the priority of David's house in 2 Samuel 7. Um, You know this, um, David says, I want to build, I I live in a house of cedar, verse 2, but the ark of God dwells in a tent with curtains. Um, Nathan says, as a prophet, do everything that is on your mind. The Lord is with you. And then Nathan walks away and the Lord says to him, "Um, actually, I have another idea. Um, Verse 5, go away and say to my servant David, thus says the, the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? I haven't dwelled in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? This is a good thing that is being said. God is saying, I didn't tell anybody this. David, this was David's idea. But are you the guy who's going to do it, David? And then he begins to give him the Davidic covenant. Um, Go say to my servant David, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all your enemies before you, and I'll make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, and they, uh, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from, the de- um, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest uh, from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. David, it was your idea to make a house for me. I'm going to make a house for you. Right? Drop down to verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Verse 18. Then David the king went in and he sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? That And what is my house that you brought me this far? So God says, David, your house is going to be a priority house in my work that I'm going to do. Now, if God promises you that concerning your house, what is your responsibility with it? Better watch over it, right? Second Samuel 11. We know what happens. David sins boldly with Bathsheba and even more boldly with Uriah in killing him. Look at verse 26. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife, and then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Go to chapter 12. Verse 9, Nathan comes and he tells him the story and gets David to see his sin. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? 
verse 9. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. This is one man's neglect of his household, and it impacted the nation for generations. Wow. That's sobering. Let's watch and see what his son did. 1 Kings 11. Keep moving to the right. Verse 1. 1 Kings 11, verse 1. Now the king Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord has said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away, from their, uh, away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Second time the word heart is used. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. Third use. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart, fifth use, of David his father had been. Notice how building his house contrary to God's will impacted his heart. Guys, let me say that again. Notice how he built his house contrary to what God revealed to him there. See the impact of it? Um, And this is another good example of how discipline two can impact adversely your heart in discipline one. Jacob. And, and um, it's sobering, and for us, what we have found in the great power of the gospel is that we have equipping in the gospel to be able to do what is absolutely terrifying. Or not terrifying, but to keep us from what is terrifying, right? So um, God never sets up something as a lofty, sobering reality without also flooding it at the same time with the power of his gospel. Guys, we, we, we can do this, not because you have confidence in you, not because I have confidence in you or elders have confidence in you. We can do this because we have confidence in what God has promised us in the gospel. And so you turn yourself away from your abilities, your resources, and you turn to the resources of God in the gospel and in the new man that he made you into. Um, we need to be sobered by this. And it's not an event. You don't go and do this and it's done. This is what you fight for the rest of your life. You fight for this. You fight for it. You fight for it. You're going to lose some battles. You've already lost some battles. You're going to lose some more. But you know what? You keep fighting. And you keep fighting and you keep fighting. And you will not be the same man fighting at the end of your life that you were when you started fighting in the gospel. Okay? This is a progression 
and we get to do this together. We're calling all of us together and say, let's fight this together. And when you get weak and you fall down, there's going to be some guys next to you to pick you up and say, come on, keep going. Nobody's giving up here. Okay? we got to keep going on this. The Old Testament is full of, of examples who failed to grasp God's heart for the home. Let's move next to another really encouraging topic. Let's do number four, the ease at which God is forgotten in the home. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 6. This is a little sobering as well. Deuteronomy 6. But I, I really love this about the way that God is, guys. He will paint a very dark and scary portrait. And then right in the middle of it, he puts a bold, shining, glorious cross, an empty tomb, and a new reality in Christ for those who trust. It, it's, you don't need to be afraid of these dark, dark, scary, sobering things. You do if you only look at them and never look at the cross. So don't do that. Jacob, what's the quote? For every look at my sin, what? Is it 10? For every, every look that you look and you see something dark in, in your own heart, take ten looks away to the cross. To what God did, that's how you preach the gospel to yourself. Go back to, to the light of God's work. Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities, which you didn't build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you didn't plant, and you eat and are satisfied. That's when you need to watch yourself, Israel, that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So when you're sitting in that house and you're kicking back on the porch and you're thinking about, this is the good life, that's when you need to watch. Go to chapter 8, verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud. And that's when you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. He is saying, look, you're going to get these houses that you didn't even build, and some of you are going to go build houses and you're going to go live in them, and you're going to have this wonderful household development thing that's going to go on, and that will become the platform where you forget God. Okay? He's just telling them that ahead of time so that they can be aware of it and know it and fight against it. Now, let's go to number five. Let's talk about the impact of one, uh, one's faith on the entire household. One person's faith in the gospel and the impact it can make on the entire house. This is greatly encouraging. It helps balance out and complete the picture in scripture of watch out, man. The house is a place where we can forget God. We can, we can blow it greatly. I've got all kinds of Old Testament examples God could say of how one man messed up his whole family. Now I'm going to give you some examples of how one man or one person saved his family. Not he didn't save, but God worked through that one to save the family. Look at this. Acts chapter 10. This is Cornelius. Uh, verse 22. They said to Peter 
Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and he gave them lodging. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. Cornelius is using his household like they did all the time back then. Everybody come to my house. There's a message coming that we've got to hear. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, you know, he shares the gospel with them. Um, it's like he almost didn't really have to say much at all. While he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. So here is an example in Scripture in the era of Jesus Christ that the house can become a platform for God's truth to impact everybody else. Cornelius, his entire household, uh, was impacted by one man's heart for God. Go just a few chapters to the right, Acts 16. God gives us an, an example of a woman this way. Verses 11 to 15 is the greater context. Look at verse 14. Paul is in um, Philippi. And a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, that means that she's not a Jew, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So her heart came into full contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ through Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, so her whole household has been affected by this as well. And she urged us saying, if you judge me faithful, uh, to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, there's another example in the same passage of the of the, the jailer, the Philippian jailer. Look down at verse 22. You know, the crowd rose up against Paul and Silas. The chief magistrates tore their robes off them and just started beating them with the rods. I've been reading background on the Greco-Roman world at this time, and these men would walk around with these rods, and they would walk through the city as these, ma- these magistrates, and the, the idea was that's the guy who has the authority of this city and even as a representative of the Roman Empire in this province, to carry out justice. Just walked around with these rods. And that's what Paul got beat with here. So they get thrown in jail. You know, the earthquake happens. Now drop down to um, verse 29. Uh, the soldier's about to kill himself because he knows that if the prisoners escape, they're going to kill him anyway, so he just would kill himself. Romans did this. They would oftentimes offer the person who was guilty the opportunity to commit suicide. They thought that was a noble way of carrying out justice. I'll either kill you or you can kill yourself. He called for the lights. He rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he spoke... Uh, He took them that very hour of the night and he washed their wounds and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So here's another great example of one man who impacted his whole household. Jeff. 
how do we take that view and your household passage theologically? Expand on your question so I understand. What do you mean? Is that one man's believing going to save both him and his household? No, this passage especially is very clear that not only did he believe in God, but in verse 34, his whole household believed in God. So if you expand the context, I mean, just that one verse alone, which is often taken out of context. Yeah, and it's used for justification of a lot of things, along with Lydia's as well, because Lydia's back in verse 15 does the same thing. It just says that she and her household were baptized. There's huge, to, to leap from there and, and draw conclusions about um, equating baptism with as a sign of the new covenant with circumcision with the old covenant, that's a huge leap. Especially when a fuller passage in the same chapter spells out very clearly what is meant by that, that there is belief in the household. Um, so it's not just Lydia believing and then everybody's baptized even though they may not have believed. No, what, what is meant is like what happened with the Philippian jailer. He believed, so did all of his household. He was baptized along with all of his household. So that's how we need to make sure that we see that carefully there. All right, so there's the impact of one's faith on the home. Yes? Also, is that is that part of God's election too? Is that God chose to use Paul to, to change his heart? And then, and then he also used Paul to change the hearts of the family with him. So... Yeah, I, the, the Cornelius's household are, are are the elect of God who have come to faith, absolutely. Um, and we'll see here in a moment that you're not going to see this happen in every household. Mark. Well, when, uh, when you're speaking of, of David's judgment and his wives would with his companions in the streets, uh, everybody's full of you. need to constrain ourselves to what is being said in the, in the chapter and, and uh, that helps uh, clarify for us rather than trying to import a whole bunch of other ideas from, from other places. So Now, if this is the case, if one person's faith is often used by God in this manner in a household, what would the devil think about that? Let's take a look at number six, the attack on the home and go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy 3, we won't read the whole section, but look at verse 1. Realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers. They'll be disobedient to parents. There's household relationships again. Now, let's drop down a little bit to verse 5. These men that I just described in verses 2 to 5, avoid such men as these. Why? Well, let me explain. Verse 6. For among them are those who enter into households, and what do they do? They captivate weak women. Well, what do you mean by weak women in these households? Well, they're women who are weighed down with sins. Women who are led on by various impulses. 
These are women who are, verse 7, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Evidently, there are women in these households, and they don't know how the gospel addresses their sin because they're still weighed down by their sin. They don't know how the gospel addresses or dethrones their impulses, their desires, and changes them. They weren't equipped well with the gospel to know how to deal with their sin and their desires. And they're always learning something, but it's not a heart shepherding to the word of God to get the knowledge of the truth. It's something far different than this. So here's the attack. What kind of men are these ungodly, unprincipled, immoral, wicked men described in verses 2 to 5? And they go into households and get these women. Okay, go to Titus chapter one, same author writing in the same similar kind of a letter, a letter to a man who's overseeing churches. He gives him the, the elder qualifications in Titus chapter one, verse five and following. I'm going to end with the, the last one given in verse nine. Men are, they need to be men who are holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. He needs to be able to hold fast to the faithful word. According to the teaching of the apostles, he needs to be able to exhort with sound doctrine and he needs to be able to refute those who contradict. Why? Well, again, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. And they must be silenced. These are men who must be silenced. Why? Because they're upsetting whole families. How? By teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Okay? So, here's the question that I think needs to be asked after looking at Second Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Here's the question. Are you ready? Where are the men? Where are the men? Where are the husbands? Where are the fathers? Where are the sons that are growing up and saying... Uh, that's bad doctrine, Mom. Um, honey, where did you get that? Where, where did that thinking come from? Daughter, sweetheart, you can't read that. And here's why. Where are the men? The household's best protection is a man who shepherds his own heart and then his family into the church where there are shepherds who can help the men learn how to refute error with sound doctrine. (coughs) Men, work by the grace of God in the gospel to equip yourself with sound doctrine so that you don't leave your wife and your children vulnerable to error. Because that's what's going on here. The wives and the women of these households are left vulnerable to error, to false teaching. So equip yourself in such a way so that that can't happen in your household on your watch. Okay? Number seven. We need to balance this all with what other, uh, complement this with what other teaching there is. Go back to Matthew 10. Number seven, the family of the home can actually become an obstacle to the gospel. Matthew 10. With all this that's being said you will find um, that there are some who will place the family, the Christian family, way, way up here. 
way up here. Way up high. Why? Because they recognize these kinds of things. We have a high calling to step into our homes as men of God and care for our families and shepherd them. Well, that's true. Now go to Matthew 10, verse 34. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household? He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me, he is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Uh, you'll find something similar in Luke 12 and Luke 14. Listen, here's, here's what goes on. The gospel of the kingdom comes and it invades one person's life. This is what you see happening. It invades one person's life. Now, what happens next is very important. Um, that saved individual is called by Christ to step into his family, bring all of his household relationships, and put them all under the gospel. Not take them and put them above the gospel. The gospel doesn't come in under a bigger, more glorious subset called family and do what it does underneath in the family. The gospel comes in, it is supreme over everything, and that individual who gets saved takes his household relationships and he pushes them all down under the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Jesus is showing here is by saying you can't honor your family above me, he is saying that the family is actually not the apex of God's plan right now. Is the family important to God? Yes, it is. Don't hear me say that it's not. But by when you say that it's not the apex, you're not saying that it's not important at all. It's just not the most important thing. The gospel is the apex of God's plan. The family is what then? The family is a servant under the gospel supremacy and mission of the gospel, advancing forward in the world. Now sometimes what we see in the New Testament here, with Cornelius, Lydia, and the Philippian jailer, sometimes the gospel, as, it's, as the family pushes all of his household relationships under the gospel, what happens by God's grace and his sovereignty? The whole family comes to Christ. And Jesus is teaching that that is not always the case. Bring your family under the gospel, and in doing so, you might actually find that the members of your household become your enemies. Okay? The family, we need this complementary teaching with the other. Okay? Go to Luke 9, verse 57. Luke 9, verse 57. Labor hard, guys, to, to keep the right perspective, um, to keep your family in the right perspective, in the right place with the gospel. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, well, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so then Jesus said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And the idea here is his father's not dead yet. 
that I, I need to, I kind of need to wait things out with my dad. And then once he's gone, I'll follow you anywhere you say to go. But Jesus said to him, verse 60, allow the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is speaking very frankly, isn't he? Your family can become an obstacle to the gospel. It can't. Take your family and push it under the gospel. And if in calling you in the gospel to go the direction that God wants you to go, your family may or may not come with you. Go to Matthew 12, verse 46. I'm sorry, no, I want to go to Mark 3. Mark 3. I'll let you look up the other passages, the the parallel passages, but look at Mark 3. This is amazing. And this is so helpful to see the life of Jesus here, guys. Uh, Praise God that God became flesh. And he was a boy. And he was a son who had a mother and brothers. You and I need that. We get to see this in him. Watch this. Chapter 3, verse 20. He came home and the crowd gathered again. The crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. This was going on all the time. Wherever Jesus went, they were just flooded with the crowd and it didn't matter what was going on. There's no way we're going to be eating now, guys. For the, if, you know, we're going to have to wait. Now, what happened when that took place? Verse 21. When his own people heard this, who's that? His earthly family. His, his kin. It's Mary. His brothers. When they heard this, they went out to take custody of him. He's not... Uh, in his, he's not in his right mind. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to have a little family intervention. <laughs> have a crisis going on here. They're saying he lost his senses. Mary thinks Jesus has lost his senses. Now drop down to verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived. You see, they were the ones when they heard this, they were off someplace else. Well, now they've arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to him inside because they couldn't even get to him. There's so many people. A crowd was sitting around him and they said, "Uh, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside and they're looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brother? And the natural thing that everybody would have said is, Mary and, you know, James and... There guys outside. And he looking around, looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now notice how Jesus properly weighted his earthly family and the supremacy of the gospel. Even Jesus Christ, Son of God, took his earthly family and he what? Pushed them down under the gospel of the kingdom. He did. And he calls us to do the same. That's what those other passages are showing us. Okay? Throughout the gospels, you'll also see that Jesus was... Also, he, he very much honored and he respected Mary. Sometimes he spoke, uh, he spoke sternly with her. Woman, 
this is not my hour to do this yet. Um, but he always honored and respected her, even in, when he's in agony on the cross, hands her over to John to be taken care of, right? But he also didn't hesitate to put his work as redeemer above her, where she and his brothers detracted him. Mike. Um, let me say one other thing and I'll answer the question that's a great question it's the right question to ask so so not only did Jesus properly weight his earthly family with the supremacy of the gospel but he also indicates that a greater family gets formed who are my mothers and my brothers those who do the will of God so he is now hinting at a new family is going to be formed that goes beyond the primacy of, of, a, of an earthly family. Okay. Now then, what does that look like? I think that looks like, I can tell you what happened in my own life. When I got saved when I was 19, I thought for sure I was living with my mom. My parents had divorced. I was the, the last kid home. and I was taking care of mom, and we were like this. And I got saved by God on a Saturday night. I got up on a Sunday morning and I told my mom, and I was sure she was going to repent and believe because we were like this. I'm sure we thought the same way. I shared the gospel with her and she completely rejected. As I got plugged into a local church, I found myself spending lots of time with other families. And I found that there were other people's moms who were believers who kind of became my mom. And do you know what my mom said, my earthly mom said to me at one point? She started, and, and, it, this, and I needed to hear what she said to me because I needed to be very careful because I'm not sure this was imbalanced. But she said, I feel like you treat them like they're more your mom than I am. And so I needed to be careful that I wasn't dishonoring my mom. And yet at the same time, there was a new truth reality that I was a part of a new family. And I had a mother relationship with some women who didn't give birth to me that were uh, tighter mother bond, son bond, than what I ever had with my mom. So that's where the church comes to play. That you come into a new body, you become members of one another in a new family. Those who do the will of God through the transforming work of the gospel become a family. And you are still obligated to honor your mother and your father, but you are also now a part of a new family. Um, That takes supremacy over your earthly family. So it might mean that you will have some distance that will come between and there will be some awkwardness in a relationship, uh, but you have to hold on to the tensions. I'm in a new family, mom, dad, son, daughter, but I love you. And I'm going to be obedient to God in my relationship with you. God says both of those things not only can happen at the same time, they must happen at the same time and they do happen so um, any other thoughts on that alright let's finish up number 8 leading a wife requires a strong grasp on the gospel Ephesians 5 quickly verse 25 watch this husbands love your wives how? just as Christ also loved the church well how did he love the church? he gave himself up for her 
Why did he love her? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present to himself. I love that. He's going to present us to himself. In all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Um, Men, husbands, uh, future husbands-to-be, spend the rest of your life developing a solid grasp on how Jesus loved the church so that your love for your wife can be what it's supposed to be, okay? Leading a wife requires that you have a strong grasp on the gospel. So as we think about discipline two and you're stepping into your home, if you're going to be married someday or if you already are married, that requires that you have a strong grasp on the gospel because your love for your wife is to be reflective of his love for the church, okay? If you look at verses 28 down through 32, Paul shifts the conversation now uh, even more so to the church, Husbands also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also cherishes the church, because we're members of his body. And then he goes to the Old Testament to confirm this oneness of flesh. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul says, that's a mystery, that's great. But I'm not talking about a husband and wife's oneness. I'm talking about this in reference to Christ in the church. The, the, the oneness that the church has with Jesus Christ. Husband, you need to have a good understanding of the church and its connection with Jesus so that your marriage can reflect even that properly. So you can't just have a... It's not enough to say, well, I'm just going to say the gospel so that I can just make sure I know how to love my wife. You also need to study the relationship and how the church got formed out of the gospel because the oneness that the church has with Jesus Christ must be reflected in your relationship with your wife. So if you're going to be a husband in your household, two key things. You've got to know the gospel and you've got to understand what the church is. So there's what you need to shepherd your heart to so that you know in scripture so that you can bring that impact into your home. Lastly, I want to show you a New Testament model for marriage. A good example. Let's go back to Acts 18. Who are we going to look at? Do you know? Acts 18, verse 23. Yeah, Priscilla and Aquila. Or Prisca and Aquila. Verse 23, and having... Um, oh, I'm sorry, wait. I want to look back at 18.1. I don't know what I said, 23. After these things, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. So he has this companionship and co-laboring partnership with Prisca and Aquila. Now drop over to verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos and an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, he came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue with that limited understanding. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So they served alongside Paul as a husband and a wife. They're theologically set that they can hear something and go, hey, Paul, let's have a moment over here. And they helped straighten him out, explained to him the way of God more accurately. And boy, did Apollos benefit from that. 
his ministry. Now go to Romans 16. One last passage on them. Paul, in his greetings at the end, he says in verse 3 of chapter 16, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. So evidently, their household was of such a a nature and a character that it it was easily a platform for the body of Christ where the bigger relationships of family could be seen well. Their household was well suited for the church. I, I just thought about that this morning. Could you imagine your household being a place that is well suited for the church to meet in? Do you have that kind of a, do you want there to be that kind of gospel aroma in your home with your family, with your wife, with your kids, with your roommates, that it would make sense for the people of God, the church, to be able to go, you know what, we need to meet in that guy's house. That's something to strive for together, guys. Now, side note on this. Did you notice whose name is mentioned first? Two out of those three times? Okay, let me give you an example. In uh, Matthew 1, verse 16... It's Joseph, the husband of Mary. In Luke 1, it is Zacharias, and at the end of the verse, his wife, Elizabeth. And even in Acts 5, with the notorious bad couple, Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. But then when you get to this couple, apart from Acts 18, verses 1 to 3, after that, Paul always says, Priscilla had a quote. I just think that's great. She stood out in his mind that he would switch the convention. Um, he was impressed with the kind of woman of God that she was. So, all right, so here's, here's the survey. We, we turned the spigot on full bore today, right? Uh, but the overwhelming message of the Bible is this, guys, that the man of God places a high priority on spiritually influencing his household with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we put Discipline 2 right after Discipline 1. Okay? You've got some homework that you're going to do this week. Um, Once again, this homework works best if you don't do it Friday night. Um, See if you can sit with somebody in your home who can ask you these questions. If you don't have a wife, um, ask roommates or ask people who are in your household regularly. What's your impression on this household what impact do I have on this household? What, what aroma is in this household? Um, ask if, if Those of you who have kids that are old enough to participate in this, ask your kids, son, what do you think about this household and the way that I lead it? That, that would be helpful if you can do that. Ask those questions. Take them before God, and uh, we'll have great conversation about them next time together. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that you would um, do two things this morning. Sober us and then lift us up. Lift us up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give us hope um, and and direct us to where the hope lies. It does not lie in our uh, creativity, our ingenuity. It lies in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It lies in the equipping that you gave this in this new man that we now find ourselves in by your grace. So, Father, help us to be obedient, to be faithful, to live for you. 
and help us to be an encouragement to one another, to lift one another up when we're down and faltering. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.